0: Have you ever been in a situation in which you felt like something appeared legitimate only to find out later that it's not? Several years ago there was a company that did lawn care that came into our community and they began selling their treatments to customers. They had big trucks, uh, glossy business cards, nice logos that were impressive. And neighborhood, uh, neighbors began purchasing lawn care from this company. And over time, these customers started realizing that their grass was not improving. In fact, it was getting worse. Weeds were starting to take over their lawn care. Word started spreading that these guys skipped town with everyone's financial information. You see, they were con artists. They were pretenders. Well, it turns out that the Apostle Paul faced something very similar in his ministry in Ephesus. While Paul is ministering the gospel, as he's preaching Jesus, as he's making disciples and seeing churches planted all across Asia, there were some pretenders whom he encountered there in Ephesus. And while he's there preaching the gospel, these pretenders begin using Paul's name as a means of performing an exorcism, Only for these pretenders to receive a beating that they would never forget in the city of Ephesus. Would never forget. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. This great historical narrative written by Luke We're seeing the movement and the power of the Holy Spirit to change people's lives. The the Holy Spirit who fell in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem at Pentecost, we have seen him on the move all over the world. Paul is now in Ephesus, more than 1,200 miles away from Jerusalem, and he is preaching Jesus and seeing a movement of the gospel that is taking place. Paul's on his third missionary journey now in Acts 19. He's there in this cultural city of, of Asia Minor. Of Ephesus it's one of the largest cities of the Roman Empire when Paul first arrives he goes to the synagogue as was his custom and he's sharing the gospel he leads these disciples of John the Baptist to faith in Christ but after three months of arguing with the Jews he leaves the synagogue he goes to the hall of Tyrannus It's there that he's preaching the gospel and all of a sudden momentum begins to build through his ministry. This strategic move meant that over the next two years, all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. All right, Verse 10 is worth getting up and dancing over. It's this movement of God in which everybody hears the gospel there in that province. May God do it again in our day. Where there's a movement of the Spirit, where believers in Jesus are unashamed of the gospel, boldly preaching Christ wherever they go. Well, watch what God does next. Through the ministry of the Apostle Paul in Acts 19, beginning with verse 11, and the scripture says this, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. As Paul is playing offense with the gospel in this ancient city of Ephesus, the power of Jesus is revealed through his ministry. I want you to notice in the text Jesus' power working in and through Paul and how God is glorified through the faithfulness of gospel preaching. I want you to see first in the text. Notice, number one, the confirmation of the gospel message through the miraculous. The confirmation of the gospel message through the miraculous. The text says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, who is doing the miracles? Verse 11. God is. God is performing the miracles. Paul is merely the instrument. He is the conduit through which God is performing these miracles. Now, keep in mind that backdrop of the culture of Ephesus. One author described Ephesus as the epicenter of necromancy, exorcism, and magic for all of Asia. It also enticed criminals, politicians, financiers, religious leaders, and artists. Ephesus became a cultural center, a Louvre of art, a Sweden of asylum, a Mecca of religious pilgrimage, a DC of politics, a Wall Street of finance, and a Diagon Alley of magic. All of this in one metropolis. You see, this is a city that was captivated by magic and mysticism. Idolatry was big business, which we're going to unpack more next week. So here's Paul preaching the gospel, and God is confirming the legitimacy and the validity of his message through miracles. Even the, the face cloths and aprons that touched his skin, they were brought to the sick, and diseases leave the people. Evil spirits are cast out of people. You see, these signs and wonders and miracles are prerequisites for being an apostle. Now, there are people today who claim to be apostles. And may I say, there's no such thing. You can't be an apostle We see in the scriptures where God has laid out prerequisites for becoming an apostle. What are they? I put them in your notes. The first prerequisite is that you are chosen and appointed by Jesus. You're chosen and appointed by Jesus. Over and over in Paul's letters, you will see him begin his letter with Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. To be an apostle, you have to be personally selected by Jesus. Secondly, you must personally see the resurrected Jesus. You have to be a visible, uh, you have to have that, be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Remember back in Acts chapter 1, where Judas Iscariot, the, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, has now died. And so now the, the 11 disciples who are left, they've got to figure out who's going to take his spot. And so Simon Peter says in Acts 1.22, it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. He has to be a visible eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. But thirdly, he must perform signs and wonders. Signs and wonders would validate the apostleship, the authority of the office of being an apostle. So 2 Corinthians 12.12. Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Here is Paul, he is performing the miraculous which authenticates his, his apostleship and is bringing validity to the message that he is preaching. And just as Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons out of people, Paul is confirming the gospel message through the miracles. Now you gotta remember, as paul is in ephesus he is starting from scratch ephesus is a city that does not know jesus there is no christian culture there's not a christian bookstore people can go and learn about christ and the gospel these are people who have no idea who jesus is and so god is bringing validity to the gospel message through the miracles of paul In this culture that loves the supernatural, that loves the magical, they love the signs and wonders, here is Paul preaching Jesus and God is matching it with the miraculous. But the second thing I want you to see in the text is the declaration of Jesus' power through exorcism. Word is spreading all throughout this mega city in the Roman Empire that this guy named Paul is healing the sick. He's casting out demons. This is a novel moment. And people, they want to see what's going on. Well, these Jewish exorcists, these seven sons of Siva, they, they think it's time they get in on the fun. So they approach a demon-possessed man and they say, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches you see they were trying to use paul's faith in jesus to give them power and authority but that's not how it works in the kingdom you cannot have citizenship in the kingdom of god through someone else's faith you have to come to a personal time in your life in which you personally accept the gospel You're not trusting in your grandmama's faith. You're not trusting in your children's faith. You're not trusting in your spouse's faith. It's you saying, I am personally giving my life to Jesus. Like a large stadium where thousands upon thousands of people can come in, you have to come in one at a time. The question I have for you is, has there been a point in time in your life in which you have personally received Jesus? In which you have said yes to the gospel. We just saw a public testimony through Shakira's baptism, which she was saying, "Yes, I have had a time in my life in which I have surrendered my life to Jesus." Have you had that moment? You see, unless you have a personal decision that you make to follow Christ, you cannot be in the kingdom. You cannot trust in someone else's faith. You personally have to repent and trust in Christ. You turn from your old way of sin and you trust in Jesus Christ alone. By saying, I believe you died on the cross for me. That you died in my place for my sin. In which you say, I believe you were raised from the dead for me. I'm now trusting my soul to you. I'm banking my soul upon you and you alone. It's not you plus my good works. It's not you in addition to other religions, other gods, other saviors, because there are none. It's only Jesus. Have you made that decision? Well, these Jewish exorcists are saying, hey, I command you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. They're trusting in Paul's faith without personally having been converted. And what's interesting, the evil spirit responds. He's like, boys, Jesus I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? I love that. Demon says, Jesus, I know. And you better believe demons know who Jesus is. Demons know who they are and they cower in fear. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in Capernaum, which is the headquarters of his Galilean ministry. He's in a synagogue one day, and a demon possessed spirit cries out to Jesus Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demons know who Jesus is, and they cower in fear. They're terrified of him. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is in Capernaum, and they bring uh, the many who were demon-possessed into Peter's house, which is where Jesus was staying there in Capernaum. And when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time You see, demons submit to the authority of Jesus because he has the power to torment them. And they know there's coming a day in which they will finally be dealt with. You see, there's coming a day in which Satan and all of his demons will be cast into the lake of fire where they will remain forever. Their temporary rule and reign, small r's, here on this earth will come to an end. There's coming a day in which evil will be no more. Their doom is certain. Their condemnation is sure. It's in the book. It's going to happen. Well, the evil spirit knows who Jesus is, verse 15. But the spirit is also familiar with Paul. You see, Paul's been instrumental in seeing thousands upon thousands of people coming to faith in Christ. People are jumping kingdoms. They're going from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. They're no longer in bondage to sin, but they're finding freedom in Jesus. They've been set free from sin, death, hell, and the grave. And it's because of Paul's preaching of Christ. You see, Paul is a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And hear me on this. When you put your faith in Jesus, you now enter into a lifetime of spiritual warfare. The moment you believe the gospel, you are now an enemy of Satan. You are an image bearer who reflects the character and nature of God, but you have Jesus himself who abides and lives inside of you forever. And you are a threat. The question I've got for you is how big of a threat are you against the kingdom of darkness? Is your life of holiness and evangelistic passion and kingdom-expanding prayer a threat to kingdom darkness? Does Satan have a hit list of people who are threats to his kingdom and your name is highlighted? Here, the demons are declaring, hey, we know who Paul is. We're familiar with this guy. You see, when it comes to spiritual warfare you're involved if you're a follower of Jesus every day is a spiritual war whether you feel it or you don't where you're thinking about it or you're not you're always in warfare you're always at war there's never a moment in your life what in which you are not in spiritual warfare the enemy would love to lull us into, the, into sleep of being drowsy and being, oh, I'm just going to go through my life how I want to. That's right where he wants you. You're no threat. But there's a sense in which, if you begin to understand that you are at war, you think differently. You hear a twig snap and you're alert. You think differently with a wartime mentality. Hear me on this you are in a spiritual warfare, and it is more real than you can ever imagine. And even though it is invisible to the physical eye, you cannot see it, it is very real. And so as you think about this, we have to think through spiritual warfare from a biblical perspective, how God has told us what it is and what it is like. There's two extremes we've got to be careful of when it comes to spiritual warfare. One extreme is seeing everything as spiritual warfare. The other extreme is seeing nothing as spiritual warfare. Those are two extremes. We can't go to either of those places. We have to live in the middle of what the Bible says we are to live out our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we live in this middle ground. Now, we're not ignorant of the adversary's schemes. So I put in your notes five truths about spiritual warfare. Five truths about spiritual warfare. Number one, we are in a real daily spiritual war. We are in a real daily spiritual war. There is a spiritual warfare raging right now. You cannot see it, but it is real. And may I say to you, it's real even when we gather here and the gospel is preached. That for some who are here today, you do not know Jesus and the enemy hates what you're hearing right now. And Jesus warns about different seeds being cast out by the sower, by the farmer. And some seed falls on hard ground and the seed is snatched up by the birds. And when Jesus interpreted that parable, he says that the birds are like the devil coming and swooping up and taking the word. You're in danger if your heart is heart and you hear the word because Satan will snatch it from you. You see, uh, When we gather here as a church and the gospel is being preached, there is a wrestling in this room. We are wrestling for the souls of men and women and children. This is a weighty moment in which we as the church gather. But this is where spiritual warfare is real. But it's not just here in this room. It's out there in your life. It's every moment of every day the enemy is looking for weaknesses, ways that he can attack, ways that he can tempt and woo and pull you away. And the danger you're in is to think that you're not in warfare when you really, really are. Paul says it like this to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 6, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Second truth I want you to know is that we have spiritual equipment to fight back. You have an arsenal. You have weaponry that enables you to fight back in spiritual warfare. God does not leave you um, naked. He doesn't leave you unequipped. He gives you everything you need for life and godliness. In fact, when you go to the Ephesians, uh, come on, Bruce, Ephesians chapter 6, we see there where Paul lays out what's called the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. The feet shall the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is that we put on the full armor of God so that we can go to war. We can go to battle every day. You're in it. And so God equips you with equipment, with resources, with an arsenal so that you can know that you can fight back, that you push back against darkness by soaking your life in the word of God knowing the scriptures, saturating your mind with it, fighting from your knees in which you get low in prayer and you seek out to God and say, God, I've got to have you give me victory today. You need a community of gospel-centered people in your life who are going to love you and encourage you and challenge you and rebuke you and walk alongside you so you don't fight alone. That's why the church is an army. We're together in this. We've got each other's back and we encourage each other all the more as we see the day approaching. The third thing I want you to know is that demons have authority over unbelievers. Demons have authority over unbelievers. Unbelievers are powerless to defeat darkness. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, you are susceptible to the demonic. You have no power over the evil one because you do not have Jesus. Jesus alone is the one who has authority over the enemy. And if you're not on Team Jesus, you don't have the power. Fourthly, demons can influence but cannot possess believers. I want to set up camp here for a few minutes because I think it's really important that you and I grab hold of what that means. Satan has real power, he can cause real problems, and he destroys real lives. Demonic activity is real and is actively seeking to cause harm in our lives, our families, our friends, our churches, and society all around us. You can see the enemy's work all around us. You turn on the news, you turn on your social media, you can see where the enemy is at work. Where there is chaos, where there is lying, where there is deceit, the enemy is at work. You see, demons can also influence believers now they cannot possess believers but they can influence believers you see if you're walking in the flesh and not in the spirit if you're not putting on the armor of God if you're thinking more like the world than rather than thinking like God then you can be used by the enemy do you remember Matthew 16 Jesus takes his disciples on a retreat They go up to Caesarea Philippi. And it's there that Simon Peter has the great confession. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say Jeremiah, some say John the Baptist. Some say you're a prophet or Elijah. He says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter is like Albert Pujols. He steps up and hits a 450-foot bomb and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. You know who I am as the Messiah. Next passage down. Jesus tells his disciples, the son of man is going to head to Jerusalem. It's there that he's going to be betrayed. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And he's going to rise again on the third day. And the text says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Can I let you in on a secret? It's never a good idea to rebuke Jesus. Here's how Jesus responds to Peter. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, what? You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's a warning, that you and I can be followers of Jesus and still be used by Satan. We can't be possessed by him, but we can certainly be influenced by him. You see, when you're not walking in the spirit, when you're not daily denying yourself and picking up your cross and following Jesus, when you're not soaking your life and your mind with the word of God, when you're not earnestly seeking God in prayer, if you're not living in community, you are in danger. And both of us, all of us, we are in danger. Sometimes we're like, how in the world can godly people do ungodly things? It's because we stop spending time alone with Jesus. We stop memorizing Scripture. We get alone from God's people. We live in isolation. Uh Uh-oh. We're in danger. This is what we see throughout Scripture, is that we, if we're not careful, we can even be used by Satan to do his bidding. And though Satan has been decisively defeated through death and resurrection of Jesus... He is doomed. His future is locked and secured. He is headed for hell forever. He lives for the present. He still schemes, 2 Corinthians 2, 11. He still stalks, 1 Peter 5, 8. He still deceives Revelation 12 9. He still ensnares 2 Timothy 2 26. He still hinders 1 Thessalonians 2.18. He still harasses 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He still attacks us with the fiery darts of doubt and temptation, Ephesians 6.16. There's a sense in which Satan is like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, seeking to devour your faith. He wants to eat your faith for breakfast. Because he knows that if he can take away your face, your affection for Jesus, your love for Jesus, if he can get you distracted onto other things, he's got you. This is why it's so important that we stay in gospel community. This is why you need the local church, that it matters that you're gathering not just every week in this room, but you're building relationships and connections and that you have people in your life who are going to walk with you so that when you step out of bounds, when the trajectory of your life is away from Christ, you can have people say, whoa, 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 get, back, whoa get back on the trail, back, back on the trail. Let's go this way, right? I need that. You need that. Together, we're together following Jesus. We are marching to Zion together. And we want to take all of us with us. Let's go towards Christ and his kingdom. It's coming. It's here, but it's coming. So we're going to keep going that way. But until then, be strong in the Lord. And put on the full armor of God. So when we come to the battle, we don't fight alone. We fight in the strength of the Lord, and we fight with all of God's people. Now, this, I want to I leave you with some encouragement before we move on to number five. I want to leave you with some, some encouragement here. Oh. You are not alone in your fight. And the reason Satan cannot possess you if you belong to Jesus is because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence inside of you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed Ephesians 1 by the promised Holy Spirit. He is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. You have the Spirit inside of you. That indeed Christ is in you. Galatians 2:20 For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. Here's what's also encouraging. You are in possession of Jesus himself, who is greater than Satan. 1 John 4:4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan is a defeated being, he is a loser. In the end, he loses. He's also on a leash. Job 1 and 2, he cannot touch Job without God's permission. And though he will wag his tongue and shake his head and tell you lies, you can have confidence that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus is greater. He's greater. And Jesus lives inside of you. Now, we're, we're not ignorant to the enemy's schemes. All right, there's a sense in which the enemy will whisper lies to you. And I think, this is my perspective from my experience, there's a sense in which the fiery darts that are thrown at us of doubt and temptation are often thrown at us in I am statements. And it looks like this. These random thoughts that come into your mind as a believer of I am fat. I am fat worthless. I am not anyone who deserves to be here. I don't deserve to live. I should not be here anymore. Those words do not come from Jesus. This is why it's essential, helmet of salvation. This is essential. You take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So that when that thought comes into your mind, that is a sinful, evil thought, you kill it with the sword of the Spirit. There's a sense in which you are so diligent in your warfare mentality, you are fighting the enemy. This is why we must, Romans 12, 1, therefore be renewed. Come on, Bruce. Romans 12, 1, who's got it? Help me out. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Mind, 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 mind. You gotta have the word. This is so that Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is, le- uh, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You take every thought captive, you make it obedient to Christ. If that thought is not from Christ or honors Christ, don't think about it. Put it to death with the sword of the Spirit and say, my life is sitting with Christ in God and now my mind is on him. Set your mind on the things above and not on the things of this earth. So though the enemy cannot possess you, he can't influence you. But fifthly, Jesus is greater than all evil. He's greater. Jesus is greater. If you're a believer, you do not need to fear the demonic. No need to fear. Why? 1 John 4, 4. But you do need to be aware. And the demons know Jesus they're familiar with Paul, but they do not know these con artists. They don't know these pretenders. So the man who's possessed with the evil spirit jumps on the sons of Siva, beats the tar out of them. They go running down Main Street, buck naked and bleeding. First century streakers. <laughs> and I'll let you know on a secret: if you get in a fight and you don't have your pants on and you're bleeding, you lost that's what's happening here right and you see you see what happens verse 17 when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus both Jews and Greeks they became afraid and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem the fear of God gripped the people Paul is turning this city upside down Satan is losing ground and God is getting glory we see the power of Jesus over demons on full display Third, and finally, we see the demonstration of heart change through a bonfire. Revival is sweeping across this pagan city. Verse 18, many, I love that word, many came to Paul and they began confessing sin. They're exposing their evil, wicked practices that they've participated in, and now they're getting right with God, right? They know they cannot be a follower of Jesus and keep practicing their magical arts. You see, when you come to Jesus, your old lifestyle must die. When you come to Jesus, your old lifestyle must die. But you see, when you realize what Christ has done for you in the gospel, it's not a have to, it's a want to. Because Jesus changes your heart. All of a sudden, you're you're eager because you want to honor Jesus. Your heart has been changed, so now you're like, you know what, I don't mind giving up this old stuff Because it kept me from my greatest treasure. And we just saying this, your love is better than everything else in the world. And here are these Ephesian believers. They're like, oh my goodness, Christ came, died for me. How can I hold on to these things that have kept me from him? You see, what's happening here is these Ephesian believers have new affections. They have a deep love for Christ. Their hearts have been changed. But you see, several decades later, Jesus would write a letter to this church. And in Revelation 2, Jesus says, I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. What we're seeing in verses 18 and 19 is the first love of Jesus. It looks like radical repentance. It looks like, oh my goodness, Jesus is everything. I'm going to give up all that I have because I want him. So their first love looks like burning magic books publicly. They're in downtown city center. These former pagans, now born again believers, the the, the text says that they throw in 50,000 pieces of silver in value of the books that they're throwing in there. Verse 19, one commentary said, it's the equivalent of millions of dollars of just their junk that they're throwing in there. This is a life of repentance. This is what it looks like for us as followers of Jesus. Question, are you living a life of repentance? That as the Spirit brings to your mind and to your heart sin in your life, are you quick to repent? Are you eager to say, me? I'm going to throw that in the fire. I, I want to give this up. I want to honor Jesus. Prove the authenticity of your heart by burning the sin in your life. In fact, that's the impact point. I'm calling our church to, it's this. Purge and burn the sin in your life that is keeping you from following Jesus. Maybe tonight some of you have a holy bonfire in your backyard in which it's time for you to throw things in your life that do not honor Jesus right into that fire. Movies that you watch, music that you listen to, clothes that you wear, books that do not honor Jesus, paraphernalia of things you're holding on to that are repugnant to the Lord, but what an act of worship. You see what's interesting? They didn't feel like they had to. They were eager to make a bonfire and say, man, we're throwing away all this stuff that doesn't honor Jesus. They were eager to get rid of it. Maybe there's an app on your phone that is keeping you from being faithful to Jesus. Delete that app and don't download it again. And walk in the freedom and the victory of Jesus. Make a holy bonfire as an act of worship by burning the things that do not honor Christ in your life. And all the aroma that gives glory to Christ because you're saying, Jesus, you are better. See, this is what the gospel does. The gospel changes our hearts. The gospel changes our lives. And we become different people all because of Jesus.